Third, one another is more important than yourself. I've told you before, Christ does not ask us to do anything that He Himself has not already done. All of the gospel imperatives come from gospel indicatives. You do this because God has done this for you in Christ. So what a glorious, life-transforming gospel. And I love, it says there, Philippians 2, verse, verses 9-11, through 11, that God exalted Him, and that one day at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess He is Lord. That's the good news, isn't it? We do that now, voluntarily. But there's coming a day in which every knee will bow. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, one day you will bow before Christ. Atheists, agnostics, Hindus, Buddhists, everything else in between will bow their knee to King Jesus. I've told you before, some will do that willingly in this life out of the grace that He gives them, and they'll enter into glory in the next life. Others will bow because their kneecaps will be broken by the one who rules the nations with a rod of iron, and then they'll be consigned to hell. But every knee will bow to Christ. So we do that now, don't we? Let's do that in our hearts as we go to Him in prayer and ask Him to bless our time in His Word. Father, we come before You in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank You for Your Word, which You've given to us, Your people, the church. We thank You that You have not left us in the darkness of our own ignorance, the darkness of our own ingenuity, our own reasoning, our own human wisdom. But You have given us Your book, a book from heaven, a book written by men yet inspired by God, We know that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. Men wrote as they were moved by the Spirit of God. All Scripture is breathed out by the mouth of God. Every word of the Lord is tested and found to be pure. Jesus Himself said, The Scripture cannot be broken. Heaven and earth will pass away, but none of the words of truth will ever pass away. The flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever to all generations, and we are so grateful for that. Lord, we have come to experientially know and understand the power of Your Word. Lord, there are people in here who once were lost in the darkness of sin. We were once blinded in sin, once hardened in sin. We did not see the glory of Christ. He was nothing to us. And then when Your Word came efficaciously into our hearts, our eyes were opened and we beheld the beauty of Your Son. And now the Word continues its work in us. That's what we believe. That's what Your Word tells us. And that's what we live. We live our lives in light of that truth. We know that we don't need entertainment. We don't merely need... um, We don't need loud music. We don't need a smoke machine. We don't need tear-jerking stories. We need the Word of God. We know that the Word of God is the sanctifying means of grace that the Holy Spirit uses to make us like Christ. And so we come looking for nothing but the Word, looking to seek Christ. So Lord, help us. Help us, Your people, as we open the Scripture to understand the truth. We pray that the anointing that we have, the Holy Spirit, would lead us into all truth. We pray that You would open our minds to understand the Scriptures, that You would open our eyes to behold wonderful things in Your Word, and that Your Word would transform us for Your glory, we pray. Amen. Alright, well we are returning this morning to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1, that's what we do. We go verse by verse through the Scripture as God gives it to us. So Titus chapter 1. We've kind of made our way through the introduction to the book, the preface, the opening greeting. And now we enter into the heart of the letter, the body of the epistle, 
And this next section is very relevant, very practical, very applicable, very timely for us in this particular season of the life of our church. As you know, November 14th will be my last Lord's Day with you. And we are in the process of searching for the next pastor, the next shepherd who will lead his church, Christ Church. And as we do, we need to know what it is the Lord would have us to look for. We need to know the kind of man that God would have to lead his church, the kind of man equipped and qualified for such a task. And even though I'm not going to be able to finish Titus, in fact, I'm not even going to make it through the first chapter, no shock there, I guess. But even though that's the case, yet in God's good providence, we come into the next section of this book, which deals very specifically where we are. It deals with exactly where we are. It deals with the theme of pastoral ministry, and more specifically, with what to look for in a pastor. So that's where we pick up this morning, Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. Titus 1, 5 through 9. I've told you before, this little letter deals with the doctrine, organization, and conduct of a healthy evangelistic church. That's Paul's theme. That's the emphasis here. And at the very beginning of the body, Paul starts with the organization of the church, the leadership of the local church. Let me read the passage to you. Titus chapter 1, starting in verse 5. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. One of the great realities of the Christian faith is that God has not created us to be alone. God created us for community, for fellowship, for relationship. We know what God said in the Garden of Adam. You read the first two chapters, everything seems to be good, and then finally there's something that's not good. It's not good for the man to be alone. God made us for community. Community with Himself, community with others. He is a community of persons, He's a trinity of persons, and He made us in His image to reflect that reality. He hasn't made us then to be lone wolves or hermits. He's not made us to be people who are individualistic individuals who just seek to live life alone and do it all by ourselves. Instead, God has redeemed us and brought us into a community, a community of the redeemed, the community of the local church. This idea that I have my personal relationship with Jesus, I can do my own thing, that's only half the truth. Yes, a Christian has a personal relationship with Jesus, but in that personal communion with Christ, we're brought into a community of people. Every believer is a member of the universal church. And therefore, every believer is to be a member of a local church. I've told you that before, that's nothing new to you, you know that. Every member is to be, every Christian is to be in a local church. And in the local church, God has established a certain order, a certain structure. There must be divinely established organization, leadership, and government within the local church. 
And that government is comprised of two offices. There are two offices in the church that God has given that remain for today. Two offices. And those offices are pastor and deacon. Pastor and deacon. The pastors are the leaders of the church, and the deacons are the servants of the church. You can write that down if you want. Very simple, very important. The pastors are the leaders of the church. The deacons are the servants of the church. Deacons serve the church so as to free up the leaders to fulfill the mission that God has given to them, namely prayer and the ministry of the Word, as Acts chapter 6, verse 4 tells us. In other words, the deacons do whatever needs to be done to free up the pastors to pray and study and to preach and teach and so forth. That's what they do. The role of the deacon is to serve. The role of the pastor is to lead. Those are the two offices in the church. And Paul here in this passage deals specifically with the office of pastor. You see, Paul knew that churches needed, need godly men, godly leaders who will shepherd the church to spiritual maturity. Leaders who will care for Christ's people and lead them to holiness. And he was committed to that. Paul was committed to raising up pastors. We know that from reading about his ministry in the book of Acts. In fact, turn with me just for a moment to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14. That is the fifth book of the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, then Acts. Acts is right after the Gospels. The book of Acts chronicles for us the spread of the Gospel throughout the Roman Empire, the establishment of the church throughout the Roman world. And the first, second half of the book specifically focuses on the ministry of the Apostle Paul. And right here in Acts 14, we get a little bit of a glimpse into the philosophy of ministry that characterized Paul's life. Acts chapter 14, starting in verse 21. Verse 21. After they, they being Paul and Barnabas, after they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. When they had appointed elders for them in every church... Having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. That was Paul's practice. He would go into a city, he would preach the gospel, make disciples, gather the new believers into local churches, and then appoint elders over them that could lead them to spiritual maturity. That was Paul's custom. Back to Titus 1 now. That's what Paul deals with here. The need for faithful men to serve as leaders in the local church. That's the focus of verses 5-9. through Verse 5 gives us the charge to appoint elders. Verses 6-9 through give us the qualifications for appointing elders. The charge and then the qualifications. First of all, the the charge. In verse 5, Paul says, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains, and appoint elders in every city, as I directed you. Paul had left Titus in Crete, on the island of Crete. I told you Crete is an island in the Mediterranean Sea, a rather large island. Paul and Titus had apparently uh, begun a missionary endeavor there after his first Roman imprisonment. 
and apparently Paul had to leave for some unknown reason prematurely, so he left Titus there to complete the work that they had begun together. Titus was serving as his apostolic delegate and representative. And he left Titus in Crete for a very specific reason, a very specific purpose. He says, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you had set in order what remains, and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Now the word and here, the Greek word kai, could carry several different connotations. The word and, first of all, could carry the connotation of distinction. Distinction. If that's the way Paul's using the word here, then here's what he's saying. I've left you in Crete to do two distinct things. To set in order what remains and to appoint elders in every city. As if these are two different things that Paul left Titus to do. So that's a possibility. There's another possibility though. The word and could also be used what we would call epexegetically. It could be used in an explanatory way to kind of explain what comes before. If Paul's using the word that way, then here's what he's saying. I left you in Crete to set in order what remains, and this is what remains, appointing elders in every city. That's what remains. If that's the case, there's one thing that remains for Titus to do. There was one thing Paul couldn't complete before he left, and that was establishing leaders in the churches of Crete. But then there's a third possibility. This is the option I take. The word and could have the idea of specificity here. Specificity. If that's the case, here's what Paul's saying. I left you in Crete to set in order what remains, and the most important and specific thing that remains is appointing elders in every city. If that's the case, then what Paul's meaning is that there's much more than appointing elders that remains. There's more to do, but appointing elders is the most important part of that which remains. Certainly there were more than there was more stuff to do than appointing elders for Titus. We know he needed to correct false doctrine, refute false teachers. That becomes clear from verses 10 through 16. We know that he needed to instruct the various members of the church with regard to Christian conduct and sound doctrine. All of that is mentioned throughout the letter. So certainly these are things that would be that remain. These are some things that remain for Titus to do. But the most important thing for Titus to do was to install leaders in these local churches. Because without godly leaders, the local churches would never become what God would have them to become. They would be susceptible to deception and error and godlessness. So leaders were pivotal if the church was to be healthy. So that's what remains. What remains primarily is the appointing of godly leaders. Now there are a few things that I want you to notice here about the word elders. Paul left Titus on Crete to appoint elders. A few things I want you to notice. First of all, I want you to understand what that word elder means. Perhaps you've heard me use the word before, maybe you've heard the word before, but you don't really understand what it means. What is an elder? Well, there are three words in the New Testament, elder is one of those three words, that are used interchangeably to refer to the same office of ministry, to refer to the same men. The other two words are overseer, used in verse 7, and the word pastor or shepherd used in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. Obviously, we know the word we predominantly use today is pastor, but in the New Testament, the word elder is 
predominantly used to refer to the leaders of the church. But these three terms are all used to refer to the same office. To kind of prove that, just look at verse 7 with me. In verse six, verses 5 and 6, Paul's telling Titus to appoint elders in every city. And then in verse 7 he says this, For the overseer must be above reproach. The overseer must be above reproach. Now who is Paul giving qualifications for? Elders or overseers? The answer is yes. Both. Because an elder is an overseer and vice versa. They refer to the same office of ministry. To further prove this, go with me for a moment again to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 20. What I want us to have as we look at this is a biblical understanding of church polity, we call it. Church government, church leadership. You have many different forms of that in today's world. You have, obviously, the hierarchy of the Roman Catholic Church, where you have the Pope, and you have bishops and archbishops and priests and so forth. Then you have, in most evangelical churches, you have this idea of a senior pastor. He's kind of the boss. Then you might have an associate pastor who kind of works under him. And then there's a youth pastor who's further down the chain. Kind of created their own hierarchy of church leadership. But is that really what the New Testament teaches? Go to Acts chapter 20. And I want to start reading in verse 17. Paul here is going to address a very specific group of elders, the elders from Ephesus. And as he does, he's going to give us some insight into this biblical office of ministry, that of elder. Verse 17, From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. There you go, that's who he's addressing. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You yourselves know... For the first day that I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, bound by the Spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may testify, that I may finish my course in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Now, still addressing these same men, in verse 28, Paul begins to give them some exhortations. Here are, He's addressing here the elders of the church at Ephesus. Verse 28, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. There it is. Who did God make overseers? The elders. The elders of Ephesus were overseers. And why had He made them overseers? Verse 28 adds, To shepherd, or pastor, same word there, the church of God which He purchased with His own blood. The elders are overseers, and they are called to shepherd and pastor the church. All three terms are clearly used synonymously there to refer to the same men. 
Now let me give you another passage that proves that. Go to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. To get to 1 Peter, you're going to have to pass Titus, pass Hebrews, pass James, and then you'll be in 1 Peter chapter 5. Peter here is addressing a group of elders that led the congregation to whom he wrote. And as he addresses these particular elders, we yet again get insight into the office of pastor or elder. 1 Peter chapter 5, and I want to start reading in verse 1. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you, as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd or pastor the flock of God among you. Stop there. Who is to shepherd the church? The elders. The elders are to shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight. That's what overseers do. They provide oversight. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God. And not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. Nor yet is lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Elders are under-shepherds. That is to say, they are shepherds who serve under the chief shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as such, they are to oversee the church. So clearly then, elders, pastors, and overseers all refer to the same group of men. Back to Titus chapter 1. So same office. You have elders, pastors, overseers, whatever you want to call them, and then deacons. Those are the two offices that remain for today in the local church. That becomes clear in 1 Timothy chapter 3 when Paul provides qualifications for elders and then deacons. That becomes clear in Philippians chapter 1.1 when Paul addresses his letter to all the saints in Christ Jesus including the overseers and deacons. Those are the two distinct offices in the church. The deacons serve, the elders lead. So that's what you have. Pastors, elders, overseers, same men. The word elder translates the word presbuteros. Presbuteros, it's a word that normally referred to an aged man, an older man. But here Paul uses it as an official title of church leadership. It refers to a mature man. Someone doesn't necessarily have to be an older man to occupy the office of elder, but he certainly has to have mature, godly character, seasoned character. Then you have the word overseer, translates the word episkopos. Episkopos, you might recognize that word, it's where we get the word episcopalian from and so forth. The word could be translated as bishop as well. You have a King James Version that says bishop, they mean the same thing, overseer, bishop. The word refers to one who oversees, the one who keeps his eye on the flock, like a supervisor or a manager who leads and rules and looks out for the church. And then you have the word pastor. The word pastor, that's the popular word today. It's the word poimain. Poimain, it's the word that referred to a shepherd who would watch over the flock and feed the flock and protect the flock. And that's what pastors do today. They feed the flock by preaching and teaching the Word, and they protect the flock from deception and error. That is the job of the pastor. 
So all three of these words then all refer to the same office and they all highlight a distinct feature of the ministry. Together, they indicate that the men who lead Christ's church must be mature, they must oversee the flock, and they must feed them the Word and protect them from false teachers. That is who is supposed to lead the church. The elder, the overseer, the bishop. Now let me make another observation from this verse. This one's an important one, I think. Notice that the word elder here in verse 5 is used in the plural. The plural. Titus was to appoint elders in every city. Elders plural, city singular. Since elders shepherd the church, this would imply that Paul and Titus had planted, if not in every city, at least in many of the cities of Crete, they had planted local churches. And there was a need now for pastors to lead those churches. And each city... Each local church was to be led by a plurality of godly men. A plurality of pastors. That's the biblical position, by the way. Plurality and parity of elders. There are many verses that I could use to prove that. If you remember back in Acts chapter 20, verse 17, which I just read to you, it says that Paul called to him the elders, plural, of the church, singular. How many elders did they have? One? No, more than one. Plurality. Back in Acts 14.23, it said that Paul appointed elders for them in every church. Plurality of elders, singular church. James 5.14 says, Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for who? The elders of the church. Plural elders, singular church. In other words, every singular church ideally is to be led by a plurality of pastors. A plurality of elders. Obviously, if you only have one man that's qualified, then that would preclude you from having a plurality of elders. But that's not ideal. Ideally, as the church presses on to maturity, it would identify and train and equip and install multiple men as elders to lead the church. That is the goal. And these men not only serve in plurality, they also serve in parity. In other words, in equality of office and authority. All the pastors have the same office and thus the same authority. There's no hierarchy like in the Roman Catholic Church. There's no senior pastor, associate pastor. You ever read about a youth pastor in the New Testament? You don't find it there. I think God knew how to organize His church, don't you? I think I've told you before, you don't go into someone else's house and decide, you know what, I'm going to rearrange their furniture the way I like it. It doesn't work that way. What makes us think we can go into God's house and rearrange the church government the way we like it? God determines the government of the church. This is important because if you have one man, and obviously here we only have one man, but that's not ultimately the goal, we understand that. But if you have one man, that could lead to a one-man show, it could lead to where the pastor himself has no pastors over him. He doesn't answer to authority. He doesn't have other men to look up to and to answer to and so forth. So it's important that there are a plurality of men with the same office and the same authority. And that's the goal. And hopefully, in God's grace and God's providence, one day that will be the case here at Christ is King. One day there will be a plurality of men to shepherd the flock among them. That's the goal. 
So Paul knew that. Paul knew that it was imperative that each local church be led by a plurality of godly men that could shepherd them to maturity. And so Paul addresses that here in this passage. And this passage then is so important for us, so important for you, because ideally every local church is to be led by a plurality of men, and because it is your responsibility as church members to identify, look for, and vote in the right men as pastors. You got that? That's your responsibility. To look for, identify, and vote in the right men as pastors. And clearly that's very relevant to us this morning. We have to look for the right men. But that brings us then to a question. You should ask this. What are the standards for eldership? What are the qualifications for pastoral ministry? What are we to look for in a pastor? Well, Paul answers that in this passage. In this text, he lists for us the qualifications that any man must meet if he is to serve as a pastor. And these qualifications cover three areas or three categories of qualification. If you want to know if a man is qualified to pastor, look at three areas. Look at his home, look at his conduct, and look at his doctrine. His home, his conduct, and his doctrine. That kind of provides us with a nice three-point outline and we'll spend the next couple of weeks looking at those points. But for this morning and the little time we have left, I really just want to introduce the qualifications to you. This morning kind of serves as an introduction to the passage. Look at verse 5 again. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. And how did He direct Him? Verse 6. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. Not to get ahead of myself, but I think it's very clear from this passage that a pastor has to be a man, right? How can you be the husband of one wife, or literally in the Greek, a one-woman man, if you're not a man? Away with this gender fluidity nonsense. We don't embrace feminism and absurdities like that. The way God has designed His church in His wisdom and for His glory is that pastors are to lead. And they are to be men who lead. But that's, that's for free. You'll get more of that next week. That's jumping ahead. But for this morning, I want us to draw our attention to the statement made at the very beginning of verse 6. As Titus looks for men who are qualified, this is what he looks for. Namely, if any man is above reproach. That's the general statement. That's the general requirement. The rest of the passage fills that in. The rest of the passage tells us what a man above reproach looks like. But Paul begins there. A man above reproach. He mentions that again in verse 7. There he says, For the overseer must be above reproach. 1 Timothy 3 uses a different word, translated the same way in most translations. He must be above reproach. must be blameless. That's the overarching standard. What does that mean? Ah, neglectos is the Greek word. It means not to be called to account. Irreprovable means irreproachable, blameless. No one can call you to account. It's blameless character. That's the way it's translated in the King James Version. Blameless. 
It's a blameless character. It's made up of two words, by the way. It's a compound word. It's the Greek alpha privative, which means no or not. And then it's the Greek word ekkaleo, meaning to make legal charges against someone. Literally then, unaccusable. No one can bring a charge against this person that sticks. No one can bring any charge of public, scandalous, habitual sin against this man that sticks. He's a man of blameless, godly, consistent, mature character. That's the man qualified for pastoral ministry. A man that cannot be accused of any public, any scandalous, any habitual, character-tainting sin that would bring reproach upon Christ and the Gospel and the church and the ministry. Now obviously this isn't perfection, is it? He's not a perfect man. If perfection is the standard, I should leave the pulpit even now. If perfection is the standard, no one's qualified for pastoral ministry other than Christ Himself. The standard isn't perfection. The standard is consistent, mature character. By the way, it's important that you realize this. No one is worthy of pastoral ministry. No one deserves pastoral ministry. There's a big difference between the word deserve and the word qualified. None of us deserve pastoral ministry. We all deserve hell. Dust falls from the ground who defied the God of the universe, broken His law. We deserve hell. Ministry is a gift of mercy. Anything short of hell is a gift of grace. <clears throat> all spiritual gifts, all ministries are gifts of grace. They're undeserved gifts that God bestows on unworthy sinners. So we've got to get that out of the way. No one deserves anything other than Christ. The only one who is truly, perfectly blameless is Jesus Himself. That is the very one who lived perfectly for us, kept the law for us, died for us, bore the punishment we deserve, rose again on our behalf so that all who believe in Him have His perfect blamelessness accredited to their account. So that before God we do stand perfect, but in our actual conduct we are not perfect. But those who are in Christ, those who are robed in the garments of His perfect righteousness, also have the Holy Spirit living within them, and He empowers us and enables us to meet these qualifications. We can attain this godly mature conduct in this life. So all of that then to say, no one is worthy of pastoral ministry but there are some men that are qualified for pastoral ministry. And if a man does not meet these qualifications, he is not permitted to serve as an elder. That's a problem in the church. There's unqualified men in the church. How many times have we heard of a public scandal, celebrity preacher falls into sexual sin or some other grievous sin and it brings great reproach upon the gospel the Christian church is looked at as a bunch of hypocrites. Even their own leaders can't practice what they preach. They do, as the Puritan Richard Baxter said, they destroy with their life what they build up with their mouth. Utter hypocrisy. So we must have qualified men. Blameless character. This theme of blameless character is found throughout the Scripture, by the way. Certainly we're all familiar with the story of Job, I trust. 
Job chapter 2, verse 3. Listen to what God Himself says about Job. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth. I would love for the Lord to be able to say that about me, right? There's no one like him on the earth. Not because he preaches well. Not because he has all these spiritual gifts. Here's why. A blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. And he still holds fast his integrity, although you've incited me against him to ruin him without cause. What a man, huh? What character. By the way, he wasn't perfect, was he? You know what happens at the end of the book of Job? Job has to repent because he sinfully complained all throughout the book. That's what the whole book is about. But he never forsook God and he was a man of consistent character. A man who was upright. A man who did what is right. A man who shunned evil and never abandoned God even in the midst of difficulty. That is the kind of character that marked Job and it is the kind of character that must mark any man who will lead the church of God. Any man qualified for leadership in Christ's church should express the same attitude of David in Psalm 101. Let me read a couple of David's statements from that psalm. Starting in verse 2, David says, I will give heed to the blameless way. Then he adds, I will walk within my house in the integrity of my heart. Verse 3, I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. That's a blameless man. I'm not going to set worthless worldly things before me. I'm going to set the Lord continually before me. Let the Word of God dwell in me richly. Fill my mind with heaven. That's a blameless man. Then he goes on. I hate the work of those who fall away. A blameless man hates apostasy, hates deception, hates false doctrine, hates false religion, hates sin, hates what God hates. Then he goes on, the end of verse 4, I will know no evil. Verse 6 adds, very, very key verse here, He who walks in a blameless way is the one who will minister to me. That's what every local church and every believer should say. I'll have no one minister to me, no one shepherd my flock, unless he's blameless. That's the standard. That's the standard. Only a blameless man. This is the kind of character that has to mark the pastor because the pastor is an example to the flock. You go to verse 7. I love what he says here. The overseer must be above reproach. It's important to realize this. Every Christian is called to these standards. You got that? This isn't just moral standards for the pastor. It's every Christian's call to these standards. This is a portrait of a mature Christian. But the elders must meet these standards because they serve as examples to the church. Remember back in 1 Peter chapter 5? Peter exhorted the pastors there to shepherd the flock of God among you, not as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. That's it. The pastor's called to be an example. He leads by the ministry of the Word and by the influence of his life. By the ministry of the Word and the influence of his life. He's to model the kind of godly character that all church members can emulate. Later in Titus chapter 2, verse 7, just a chapter over, 
Paul tells a spiritual son, "...in all things show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us." That's the kind of character of a pastor. Blameless character. Character that no one can say anything bad about legitimately and credibly so that he becomes an example to those who follow him. 1 Timothy 4.12, Paul wrote to his other son in the faith, Timothy, and exhorted him likewise to be an example. There he says, Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. The pastor is called to be an example to the church in all spheres of life. We know what Paul told the Corinthians, don't we? Imitate me as I what? Imitate Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ. Pastors are to imitate Christ. And then the church members imitate Christ by imitating the godly conduct of their pastors. You think that makes choosing a pastor important? I think it does. If you can't follow the example of your pastor, then you probably shouldn't have him as your pastor. You should have men who set a godly example. In Hebrews chapter 13, there are two commands there that stress the need for church members to follow the Word and the example of their pastors. Hebrews 13.7 exhorts us, Remember those who led you, who spoke the Word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. In other words, be like your pastors. Follow their godly example. Hebrews 13.17 adds, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. If you're going to have to obey your leaders according to Scripture, you want the right leaders, don't you? Obey your leaders. And you only obey them, by the way, as the Word of God comes out of their mouth. The authority of a pastor begins and ends with the Word of God. I have no authority outside of the Scripture. So we obey our pastors as we follow the Word that comes out of their mouth and the example that comes from their life. That's the importance. Steve Lawson says, As the pulpit goes, so goes the church. As the pulpit goes, so goes the church. Daniel Aiken says, No body of believers in the Lord Jesus Christ will rise above its leadership. Jesus said that, didn't He? No one's greater than His Master. No one's greater than His Teacher. Expect what you get, what I get, you're going to get. No one excels above His Teacher. Generally speaking, that's the truth. The church will only rise as far as its leadership. Daniel Aiken says, the health of the church demands qualified leadership. That's exactly right. One more. Newt Larson says, without solid leadership, the church would flounder and become susceptible to perverted doctrines and we might add corrupt behavior. Listen to this. The church will never be what God intends it to be without godly leaders leading the way. It is absolutely critical. That's what makes leadership so important. That's what makes pastoral ministry so important. 
And that's what makes this passage so important for us. This text is critical for us. Not only because it's your responsibility to look for and vote in the right men as pastors, but also because these qualifications are the standards for you as well as a Christian. The standards that must be exemplified by the behavior of pastors. So that's why it's so important as we move forward in the next couple of weeks, and even throughout the history of Christ as King Baptist Church, we understand what to look for in a man who will lead the church. Because without God's leadership, the church will never become what God intends for it to become. So with that said, and we must ask, what do we look for? What are the qualifications? What are the standards that someone must meet in order to be a pastor? Well, for that, you'll have to wait until next time. But may the Lord help us as we work part two. That's right. You have to come back from away. Back from out of town and come back. So next time we'll look at that. May the Lord help us as we consider what the Lord would have us to do as a church. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for this time in Your Word. We thank You for its power and its clarity to us. We don't have to wonder about who should lead the church because Your Word tells us a man with blameless and upright character. A man who can have no charge brought against him that sticks. 1 Timothy tells us it's basically a man who can't be arrested. A man who has nothing against him. Lord, I pray that that's the character I have exhibited here at Christ as King and will continue to grow in that. And We pray for the next man. That You would bring in the next man. We, we get so caught up with intellectual abilities and spiritual giftedness, things that are important to some degree. But those things are trumped trumped by what's most important, and that is godly, exemplary character. So we pray that You would raise up that man here for us, provide that man for us as we move on, and give us wisdom as a church in the coming days to figure out what You would have us to do. For Your glory we pray. Amen.